Howdy, everyone. That's the first time I saw that little countdown. Uh, Beverly sneaked it in there. Uh, welcome to Narrative Dissonance on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren. Um, this is a new series on Unsafe Space uh, where we convene a panel of journalists from outside the mainstream to challenge the cathedral narratives and administer our weekly red pill, which I think is kind of like vitamins. Uh, you got to keep taking taking the red pill. Um, or maybe it's like the Pfizer jab, except the effective. Um, you can always watch us at unsafespace.com, which is where we embed the live stream. We're also streaming on YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, and Utreon. Uh, the best way to support us is just go to unsafespace.com, um, share the episode or other stuff that you like with a friend, hit the subscribe button, and um, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore unsafespace because our first Twitter account was banned. I don't even remember what for. I think they didn't tell us. Um, one last thing as a reminder, the next book club that we have coming up is April 24th. It's a long one. We're actually doing the abridged version. This is not the abridged version, but the uh, abridged version of Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, so if you want to do that, you might want to start reading. All right, so let's uh, let's bring on this week's panel. Um, first, I'd like you to welcome Mia Cathell. Uh, she's the American news editor for the Post Millennial. You may recognize her from Tucker Carlson Tonight, Newsmax, and OANN. You can follow her on Twitter at Mia Cathell. That's M-I-A-C-A-T-H-E-L-L. -L, or at thepostmillennial.com slash author slash Mia. Mia, welcome. Thanks for having me on. Uh, next up, we've got Juliet Truthseeker. You may know her for her work on Gab, where she exposes what Yuri Bezmenov called ideological subversion in the West. Or you may know her from her frequent appearances on the Independence Gang podcast. You can follow her on Gab at Truthseeker8487. Juliet, welcome. Hi, guys. It's good to be here. Thanks for joining. And last but certainly not least, we have Robert Krejcik. Robert is a regular contributor at Breitbart. You may have also seen him or his work on The Daily Wire, Conservative Review, Techn Technocracy News, The Jewish Voice, USA News, Citizen Journal, Talk America Radio, and the Scott Adams Show. You can follow him on Twitter at R-K-R-A-Y-C-H-I-K, that's rkrychik, or at breitbart.com slash author slash Robert dash Krychik. Robert, welcome. Hey, folks. It's great to see and hear you. Hear you. Well, thank you all for joining. Um, let's just kick it right off, and maybe we'll start with you, Mia. Um, what's the most important story about which mainstream media has been misleading people recently? Um, I'd like to begin with Florida's anti-grooming law, which has been falsely dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill, even though there's no mention of this directive in the drafted legislation at all. What it does is just protect uh, school-aged children from kindergarten through third grade in uh, DeSantis state uh, from hearing age-inappropriate uh, discussions on gender, on sexual orientation. And that's uh, something that a majority of parents, you would think, would agree with. but. Uh, the Democrats, the progressives out there, they are spinning it into something uh, that it's not. As you've seen, a lot of the Florida Democrats have uh, taken to Twitter and they're posting these kind of ridiculous videos saying gay. And uh, that shows that they haven't actually read the legislation. DeSantis even shut down a reporter at a press conference explaining that it's the mainstream media's narrative uh, that's dominating the conversation. I believe there was a poll uh, commissioned by the Daily wire that showed that uh, I believe 60% of the respondents, uh, they agree with what the bill's objective is. 
uh, once they were told the explicit legislation. Meanwhile, uh, a lot of other polling out there, they've twisted uh, the wording. Uh, they're using what legacy media has peddled it as. Uh, so that's something that we've been seeing in recent weeks. I are you, the two of you, uh, you know, Juliet and Robert, you're familiar with this bill, I'm yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. This is an interesting one, right? Because they, um, I guess if if you wanted to make an argument that the language is sloppy somehow, I mean, the bill clearly states in, I guess what I would call the recitals, but that's, that's illegal, but whatever in the, like the preamble, like this is what our intention is. And then they, and then they lay out what the, the bill actually is. It clearly states the intention is about, um, parental rights, um, the idea that parents can know what's going on, um, and that kind of stuff. And the language that they're pointing to is pretty, I think it's pretty clear. I mean, it's like kindergarten to third grade, you can't teach sex ed. And after that, it has to be appropriate. Like, all right, like, I don't, I don't know a lot of kindergartners who need that. So what's the big deal? Um, but it's like you said, Mia, it's been mischaracterized and no one seems to be no one seems to be honest about this at all. I mean, the Florida legislators who I know have read the bill uh, are the ones that start started the mischaracterization. And then the celebrities just don't bother to read it at all. Why do you think why do you think they're pushing back so much? Well, uh, the end game might be to pervert uh, classroom instruction. That's not uh, all Democrats per se. It's the far left. But then the mainstream has jumped on that bandwagon under the guise of inclusion diversity, but we're talking about school-aged children as young as, what, five years old? That's crazy mm -hmm. for them to be learning about this stuff when they haven't even hit puberty yet. And so how uh, DeSantis has built this uh, piece of legislation is that it's about parental choice, as you said, Carter, uh, parental control, and that parents do have rights uh, over their children's education. And a lot of parents have become more aware about what their kids are being taught, especially during the pandemic. Uh, when parents are forced to work from home and they're hearing the Zoom or the Google Meet backgrounds and they're thinking, what are my kids learning? They should be learning how to count. They should be learning social studies. They should be learning English, but instead they're learning what bisexual, what polyamorous is. And that's just insane to be thinking, you know, kindergarten, first, second, third. I remember just learning how to color and how to read back then. Right, right. I mean, I, again, I could see if I don't see wiggle room in the language or anything that's threatening, but I could see if someone on the left said, well, wait a minute, we're worried that because if you see how it's characterized, they say you're not allowed to mention if you have a gay uncle, which I don't read that into the bill. At all. I don't see anywhere in there where if a, a kindergartner comes in and says my uncle's gay, they have to like shut down conversation. They just can't have a conversation about, you know, sex, <laughs> which I don't know why you would steer the conversation in that direction. Anyway, certainly a fifth grader isn't going to steer it that way themselves, or sorry, a five-year-old isn't going to steer it that way themselves. So um, I, I, if there was pushback, I would, if it was honest pushback, you would expect them to say, well, the language here should be tweaked a little bit to do this. I understand the intent and blah, 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 but there's no legitimate pushback at all. It's just misrepresentation. Um, and I suspect that this plays into something that Robert wants to talk about. <laughs> So I'm, it, I'm, it totally I'm does. I'm so glad to you, Robert. Go ahead. <laughs> Carter, I'm so glad you made that connection. Just a quick comment to what Mia was saying, but I, I will connect those dots in a moment. 
you reminded me of something my former best friend told me when I was like 17 years old. I'm 39 now. This was a long time ago. She told me we're sexualizing children, no longer socializing them. And that remark of hers was made in the context of education, but also the aggregate manufactured synthetic culture. Now, and as far as untouched subjects, that the so-called mainstream media will not address, not examine, or just outright lie about what I think is one of the biggest stories of our time, and forgive me in advance, this is not very contemporary, this is more meta, is the destruction of the family, to borrow a phrase I just got from Carter before we started, this disintegration of the family. I'll give you specific metrics. I don't think I invented that, by the way. I don't, I don't get yeah, credit just, for just, that just, phrase. Just borrowing it. So, so basically, uh, we know that relative to, let's say, previous decades, previous generations, marriage rates are way down. The average age of getting married is way up. Um, the average rates of procreation, child rearing are down. Divorce rates are up. So all of these things put together form a disintegration of family as the fundamental institution of society and civilization that all of our ancestors have known. And it's dramatically changing the way we experience this world. Now, why does that relate to what Mia was talking about? Well, obviously, there's a sexual dimension to family, right? The male-female dynamic, that interplay really is the core of the human condition. And as the left, ideologically, in my view, is committed to reframing, deconstructing, mischaracterizing essential human institutions as arbitrary and or oppressive constructs, they begin to plant these poisonous seeds into the minds of children about how men ought to relate to women and vice versa, how they ought to think about their own sexuality. So, so that's my view on the meta, on the micro, just a quick remark here, because I'm probably hogging way too much time. I do think that the biological research facilities, that's the term that Victoria Newland used uh, when questioned by Senator Marco Rubio about this conflict in Ukraine with Russia. Uh, there's been next to no meaningful investigation of that or follow-up questions of the State Department or the Biden administration more broadly regarding what that actually means and what was the root of her stated concern that these biological research facilities not fall into the hands of Russian forces. So that's something that's just sort of broadly ignored in my view. Are you, are Mia and Juliet, are you familiar with the biological research facility stuff going on? Oh yeah. Had, did you get a chance to, um, I, I tried to look at the documents that the Russian military put up, at least the, the screenshots of like, here's the presentation. Um, I, but I haven't really done a lot a deeper dive than that. Um, from I mean, my reading is that the documents that they released didn't look like they were developing biological weapons necessarily. They were just kind of looking for defense against biological agents. However, being the cynic I am, the minute Victoria Newland is like, well, we don't want this to fall into the hands of the enemy. It's like, okay, well, what's there that I'm not knowing because because this is not a problem. Like what I think it is, wouldn't be a problem to have it fall into the hands of Russia. Um, are you guys, do you have any, either one of you or have any more thoughts on this? Have you looked into it? Um, I have actually, I was trying to dig into it this weekend 
And I, I found this website where you can look up uh, orders that have been processed through like the State Department or DOD. Um, I scrolled through so many. Of course, the search engine is terrible, so you have to look really specifically. But, um, you know, there was nothing like crazy in there. And it, it goes back to like 2005. But I was reading about what the because it's not just Russia accusing us. Uh, China has is on board with them accusing us of doing something wrong here. So I was looking at what they were saying. And as early as March of 2021, they were saying we have apparently over 200 bio labs that are not inside the United States. They're all over the world. And we don't let people into them to look at what we're doing. And so they wanted us to be a lot more transparent and, you know, allow inspectors in and stuff like that. And we just deny that we're doing anything crazy and kind of brush them off, which is not reassuring, really. I mean, if you're not doing anything wrong, why wouldn't you allow inspectors to come in and check it out? So, oh, and uh, Russia, actually, when they took Crimea, Apparently, we had two labs there, and we have no idea what happened to them after Russia invaded. Like, total loss of connection to what's going on in those labs. So I'm curious if they found something there that was kind of a smoking gun. It's interesting because a lot of this... A lot of this is is we get told, well, this is Russian propaganda, or this is Chinese propaganda. And there is no... You know... There's no defense against the fact that, like, yes, the Chinese government and the Russian government do produce propaganda. Absolutely. But I think the thing that at least I don't see talked about a lot is so do we. Um, so as a regular person trying to sort through what's going on, it's quite difficult because you basically have propaganda on all sides. And it's hard to find source material mm -hmm. for anything and the actual facts. Are, are you guys concerned at all that um, – are you concerned that there's something nefarious with these biological labs or is it just – You guys mind if I interject here for a moment? Okay, let's put aside uh, concerns about Russian propaganda or whatever. Let's just look at what we've got from the U.S. government. So the two best sources that I've come across are the two best analysts who are sort of doing a comprehensive deep dive, for lack of a better term – is, of course, Glenn Greenwald. And Cheryl Atkinson's website published um, a bunch of documents that they say had been deleted from the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine's uh, website. And these documents all dated back. I went through them word for word. There were maybe like mm -hmm. eight or ten of them, if I recall correctly. And all of them had a sort of broad overview of U.S. Department of Defense funding of these biological research facilities in Ukraine. And um, they had some alarming terms. One of them was, I think, called, oh, I don't want to, because I don't remember the exact terminology, but something like extremely dangerous pathogens. Okay, it was something very similar to that. They even had their own acronym for that so they could refer to it subsequently in shorthand. And that's, of course, alarming for a bunch of reasons. And let's not forget what didn't happen that long ago. So uh, th this is a massive story in terms of potential. And at a very minimum, you would imagine 
that ostensible journalists who go over to the State Department every day to speak with their spokespersons would ask questions about this. Why is Newland alarmed? What are those facilities doing? Right. But we're not getting any of that. Well, and we didn't with I mean, you know, I think you're alluding to the Eco Health Alliance and the 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 funding through um, Fauci controlled organizations and and others into to Wuhan. And they didn't ask that either. And that didn't even become you could get kicked off of social media or you I mean, we, you get kicked off of YouTube for suggesting that that was a thing, a thing. Um, and now, of course, it's at least legitimately I don't know what the mainstream has decided about that story, but at least it was legitimately uh, worth questioning. Uh, but only recently, not while it had any impact, um, which reminds me actually of this Hunter Biden stuff, because, again, it's one of these things that at the time when it could have impact, you're not allowed to talk about it. But now you can. Uh, now that it doesn't matter, Biden's been elected. It's fine. We can talk about the Hunter Biden laptop. Um, so, yeah, it's very, very similar in my mind. Mia, you, um, I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to, I want to circle back to, to what we started with. Cause I, I feel like we jumped on Ukraine, which is fine. We can get to Ukraine if you guys all want to talk about Ukraine, but we were kind of going down an interesting rabbit hole. Not only did you, um, bring this Florida bill up to discuss, but you also wrote a really interesting piece recently exposing sex ed summer camp, um, can you talk about that? And let's get back to this destruction of the family discussion a little bit, because I do think it's important. Yes. So this piece I wrote for the post-millennial, uh, I believe like a few weeks back on this sex education summer camp that's in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, it's one of many that are popping up already in spring as we head into the summer. There was also Chris Rufo exposed the sexy summer camp. I believe it's run by someone who identifies as a witch. And that's something even farther left than what I reported on. But uh, it's crazy to think what kind of parents would send their kids off to this. Uh, this Facebook page is uh, the, the personality behind it who considers herself a sex positive curriculum instructor. Uh, she has a lot of Antifa in her comments. Uh, they have Antifa banners or whatever the Facebook frames are on their profile pictures. And as we were talking about what looks like a disruption of the nuclear family. They're pushing polyamory. Uh, they're against monogamous relationships. And that really disrupts uh, what BLM is also trying to achieve, which is disrupting the nuclear family. They want to divorce the mother from the father, uh, get rid of the two-parent household, or create something crazy like a five-parent household that they all co-parent a child. And at such a young age, being exposed to this kind of gender ideology uh, it's, it's sad to think what direction our youth will go. And the report that I wrote, uh, this instructor, she has a history of teaching condom usage to children uh, as young as preschool aged. And, you know, you would hope kids aren't anywhere near that before high school, let alone middle school. And then she taught a Girl Scout group how to put on condoms on cucumbers. She did it with kids who were using crayons to draw the difference between STIs, STDs, and it's under the umbrella of uh, just being sex positive, uh, being body positive, but it is grooming. It's pushing them towards perversion at such a young age. 
And it's terrifying to think that there are mothers and fathers uh, that believe in this, that believe it's a positive step for their child. Um, so that's something that we're seeing uh, popping up in the spring and that we should be concerned with if it doesn't enter the mainstream. Yeah, one of the concerning things about that to me is, and you just alluded to it, is it's not, this is not coming from a local school board that no one was paying attention to and being foisted upon children. This is being offered and parents are freely saying yes. I, I can't imagine, I mean, no kid is saying like, mommy, I want to go to sex ed summer camp. So it's parents saying like, you're going to learn how to put condoms on cucumbers this summer. Um, you know, here's your Spider-Man lunchbox. Good luck. Right. Um, that's, that's to me worse than, well, we weren't paying attention to the school board and some bad people got in charge. This is like validation. It's really marketplace validation that there's a market for this, that there's a, there's a, there are enough parents who are like, yeah, I'll plunk down. I don't remember what it was, a few hundred bucks, uh, 500 bucks to send my kid to this camp for a week. Right. And if you look at the list of instructors, they have uh, trans identifying high school uh, volunteers who are helping out with this. Uh, they have someone, I believe, from the ND Pride board. So it's part of the greater LGBTQ community. But I, I know a lot of activists uh, who also, you know, don't want to be associated with the pro-pedophilia proponents because they don't want to accept the P to the LGBTQ community. Um, and that's a huge fear a lot of parents have is that's what they want. They want, uh, believe it's MAPS, uh, minor attracted persons. That's how they're trying to rebrand pedophiles, sexual predators. And mm -hmm. uh, it's this control of the language that's changing uh, the mindset that we're seeing. And as you said, Carter, it's not a school board. It's this niche group. But even though it's on the periphery of society right now, there's a growing movement that believe that they're on the right side of history here. Yeah. Yeah. I, part of me wonders whether it's just sometimes the parents are just um, maybe not paying attention and trying to do like you see you see how parents treated their children during the COOF pandemic for the past two years where the, the children became accessories and uh, and props for social or for social scoring social points for virtue signaling socially like, oh, look, Here's my kid crying about getting jabbed. Oh, here's, you know, I'm sticking masks on my kid when, you know, it's the, there's no threat to them. Um, and you really saw a lot of people willing to, what I would say, sacrifice their children's well-being in order to score points with their friends. Um, sometimes I wonder if that's what this is. It's like, oh, well, we're going to the progressive cool. We're sending our kid here to show that we're, you know, we get invited to the right cocktail parties now. We're cool. Um, what is it? What's it doing to our child? I don't know. Who cares? Right. It's. Can it's, I oh, go on? Can I, can I interrupt yeah, you guys? Please, just drop please. a drop a white pill. I'm so sorry, I, Mia. You're touching on so many things that are so huge. I love that you're mentioning like language and all this sort of thing. I want to share a white pill with you, and it's sort of speculative, but I'm curious if you folks agree with me. None of these measures that are being mentioned, whether it's uh, so-called gender ideology that's being thrust upon children whether it's the masking and injecting of children, whether it's uh, lockdowns of schools ostensibly for public health purposes, none of them would, sur would survive a referendum. There's a reason why mm -hmm. the machine, a term that I use to describe this you know, broader apparatus of government and 
allied institutions has to do everything via decree and mandate. So if you believe as I do, that the vast majority of people would never be down with this. And that's why the machine does what it does in part through secrecy and broadly through mandate and decree and edict, extra legislatively, by the way, that tells you that the machine knows that people would never go along with this if it was put up to them as a choice. But what about younger generations of like, maybe that's true now. I think you earlier said you were almost 40 or whatever, like, that's fine. What about the kids who are 20 who will be parents in 10 years or the kids who are 10 who will be parents in 20 years? Um, I, I kind of, my concern is the, the, the move, the slow march of culture in a direction that's concerning. Um, and, you know, I should probably just be clear and transparent here personally. Like, I think I'm probably much more libertine sexually than probably all of you. But... I mean, I, I'm I'm cool with a lot of sex positive stuff as that term was used 20 years ago. I'm not cool with uh, doing this stuff with kids or with acting as if it's normal. Like there's a difference between saying um, you could have uh, statistically deviant behavior and not throw people in prison and judge them for it and normalizing the statistically deviant behavior. Like it's still not normal. Like normal is... I'm sorry, everyone, but normal is heterosexual couples having children. Like, that's how biology works. That's how we got here as a species. Yes, there may be deviant behavior. And it, so long as it's not, you know, it, it, my view is as long as it's consent, consenting adults, I'm fine to leave it that way. But we don't need to normalize it. We don't need to say, oh, this is equivalent to this other thing. They're absolutely equivalent. And there's no, there's no downs. We're never allowed to talk about costs versus benefits of any of this stuff. It's just all, the playing field is leveled no matter what it is, it's it's viewed as completely normal and just as healthy as anything else. There are two fundamental ideological axioms, false axioms, I should say, that I think the left broadly subscribes to that relate to what we're talking about in terms of this, what I will describe as sexual indoctrination of children masquerading as educational curriculum. So on the one side is this false premise that sexuality is arbitrary, that there is no biological element or biological essentialism that drives, as you just put it, Carter, normal human sexuality. Secondarily, the left also subscribes to this worldview in which you've got oppressors versus oppressed. You've got the haves versus the have-nots, the proletariat versus the bourgeois capitalist class, however you want to frame it. And of course, in the modern era, neo-Marxism reapplies that framework, not just in terms of classes, but in terms of races, ethnicities, between men and women, and also now between different sexual preferences or what they call sexual orientations. So when you subscribe to that false premise that human affairs is defined by struggle between haves and have-nots, you'll end up believing that people with particular sexual preferences are unjustifiably oppressed or discriminated against or held down by the alleged oppressor class. And they think they're sort of nipping that in the bud by sort of putting this everything is equal, as Carter just put it, to children to make sure that they don't grow into these evil oppressors that they think all the adults are. So those are the sort of 
dual interrelated axiomatic assumptions that are false that really shape the ideological core of what we're describing. Mia, Juliet, what do you think? I think that's like an excellent point. Um, it's like hard for me to wrap my brain around this. I was like, I was a nanny for years during college and, you know, I've been around a lot of small children. I just can't imagine parents that are okay with sending five-year-olds to these types of events. I just, why, what, why would they need to know any of this yet? You know, it's not like, I, I mean, psychology for a long time said that being exposed to sexual stuff at a young age is damaging. They're not cognitively ready for that type of thing. So it's just, um, it's troubling. And I see the ideological subversion type aspect to this and that they're trying to sever our generations. They want to create this huge divide between people that are a little bit older and this next up and coming generation so that we don't have any of the same beliefs or traditions, morals, ethics, none of that, because then it's easy to move society in the direction they want it to move instead of a more natural progression um, and it, it's troubling right now because with things like these camps and the backlash to Florida's bill, it feels like they're kind of winning. But you know, I try to remember that just because a certain group is the loudest doesn't mean that they're the majority. Um, I really hope we see more states introduce bills like Florida's because I think protecting children is part of the obligation of a healthy society. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, I think what, what Robert, I mean, one of the things you're referring to Robert is that, you know, you've got the Marxists were disappointed because the Marx predicted that the proletariat would inevitably rise up and that communism would happen by default, that capitalism would suck so much for the proletariat that they would, rise up and revolt. And that's how communism would happen. And of course, uh, instead, what happened was you had an increasing middle class and proletariat becoming petit bourgeois and that not really happening. And you had, the, I think, the critical theorists, you know, maybe Frankfurt School, you know, Adorno and those those kind of people is where it started, although I'm sure it started before then. I'm not an expert. But the, the critical theorists came along and said, OK, well, it didn't happen. It is it didn't happen and they were frustrated they didn't they didn't then say well it didn't happen therefore maybe we should recheck some of this they said okay well it didn't happen because um actually history is controlled by these oppressors and oppressed still we're going to adopt that but there are these narratives and discourses and they're kind of in charge and so they 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 develop critical theory and they start applying it to everything and i i think what happened was they are now actively trying to bring about what didn't happen. They didn't cease wanting that Marxist utopia. They just realized it wasn't going to happen um, because in their view, there was this other force at play, these, these, um, these discourses and critical theories at play, and they needed to use critical theory to push back on the establishment that was preventing the revolution from happening. And so that's really, I think, when I look at this just from a long-term philosophical perspective, I think this is the motivation behind this. It's 
we need to bring about this. We need to, and I don't even know that they would agree on what the utopia is, but they all are in agreement on capitalism or U.S. bad, 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 right? So that needs to come down, whatever that is. And if that means turning races against each other or destroying, uh, you know, gender roles or, you know, sexualizing children, whatever it is. Um, and I think it all plays, it all fits really nicely into, you've seen the Democrats talk more and more about the state taking over parenting. Um, just, you know, they, they say, well, people need childcare. Well, they need this. Well, we, you know, here's a single mom who, by the way, it is a problem that she's a single mom. The solution is not to marry the government, but that's the government solution. Marry the government will take care. How much do you think, uh, how far along are we on that? I mean, every dystopian novel, I mean, just Brave New World is a great example. The kids are raised by the government. Is that the goal? And is that how close are we to that? And, you know, do you think they're explicit in that agenda? Who wants to go? <laughs> I, I, um, I, 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 I just want to give a sh Juliet, that was amazing. I'm totally stealing that line, severing <laughs> the generations. Incredible. That is exactly <laughs> so. It's exactly what's happening. There's a disconnection between different generations. Absolutely. Okay, look, look. Uh, two things on intent versus just natural trajectory and momentum. So, Carter, you're asking whether or not there's this design. What's the plan? What are they really going for? Um, I don't even know that it particularly matters what their intentions are when we can just examine the behavior as it is. And very often behaviors don't have clear motivations behind them. Or put another way, the person engaging in said behavior doesn't have a clear vision of what he or she is bringing him or herself towards. This is definitely true in a micro sense, simple example. Uh, alcoholic doesn't intend to go plow into a child while driving a car drunk, okay? But that can happen. So when we see this increasing government seizure of all of the spheres of human affairs, we can predict where things will head. It doesn't matter if Joe Biden's medical team wants this to happen. It doesn't matter if Mark Zuckerberg has this three-point plan somewhere in his drawer. What matters is that what they're doing creates momentum and trajectory, and you can forecast where things are going. And we degrade ourselves as people if we offload our responsibilities to others. That's what becoming a spoiled child is. And the government sort of does that too. If you offload your duties, let's say, as Juliet was mentioning earlier, protecting children, if you outsource that to more, more distant government, it's going to fail. If you outsource your parenting, as Carter was saying, let the government raise your children for you, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to become degraded, corrupted. They will not turn into good human beings. So, so we don't need to have a sort of manifesto found somewhere in one of these elites' drawers to, to sort of forecast where things are going. Now, the last question was, how far along are we? I don't know. But white pill, the future's not yet written. It's up to us to define it. As, uh, as Julia yeah. was saying, uh, the severing between generations. We are seeing a vilification of the older generations. Uh, there's the okay boomer meme. And that's something, you know, we say as a, a slight joke, but it's a jab, a jab at the greatest generation, a jab uh, at uh, the older Americans who have built the industry. Uh, and what it's caused is this generational gap and this disconnect. And that's why the government is targeting the youth who are 
easily impressionable. Uh, you saw the TikTok influencers were debriefed on the conflict in Ukraine. And that's something uh, general public would laugh about because what do they know? Uh, but they're, they're targeting this age that will believe anything uh, that comes in front of their TV screen or that pops up as a notification on their app. And uh, that's something that they see as an easy entrance point. Now with gender indoctrination, uh, they kind of capitalize as uh, Robert was saying, the oppressor versus victim mentality. Teenagers are so angsty at that age. They of course want to rise up. They, they want to rebel against big government, but then they simp for big government and big pharma and big tech. Uh, and they only have these kind of surface level declarations about society at that point. And then with children at elementary school age, they of course um, are far more impressionable because they'll believe they're a plane one day because they enjoyed uh, jumping on the jungle gym or they believe that they're a dog the other day uh, because they saw it on TV and they take it from this kind of uh, fantasy standpoint to these real world connections oh, you feel feminine because you liked your sister's dress. Well, you should be wearing your sister's dress and one day you will become your sister's sister. And uh, that's a dangerous and slippery slope that we've gone down that they take something um, like a child's imagination and uh, we, we're seeing it manifest in the real world. Yeah, it's absolutely predatory. Uh, when, when you think, when you put it that way, Mia, like they are, they are, exploiting the imagination of children i mean i remember when i was five i think i jumped off of a dresser and busted my lip because i thought i was superman like you know i guess today my parents would be like you are superman you if that's how you identify you know do it again until you die i guess this is the but um so let me let me uh, play devil's advocate maybe you, maybe you guys can argue with me if you disagree uh so I, I get the vilification of boomers, the OK Boomer meme, and like that is said derisively. Uh, but let's just look back at what boomers have done. Uh, boomers have created the uh, like trillions and trillions of dollars of debt. They 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 created and and benefited off of an, an entire social security system that has been used to uh, to tax young people. Uh, at which, which by the way, is not obviously is not self-sustainable to tax young people uh, at so that they can have a, a nice retirement. Um, they have printed money like there's no tomorrow, uh, deflating the dollar, and they've been in charge. So I, there are valid criticisms. I think. I mean, and, and you know, I'm not a boomer. I'm close. I mean, I'm Gen X. I'm not, a, but I'm not a boomer. Um, but. They really they had the reins for a while, and we can have this sunny disposition about uh, the rhetoric from the Reagan era, but the actuality is is actually that what they did was actually much different. They borrowed a lot of money, they created a lot of government programs be, prior to Reagan and FRA. They took us off the gold standard. They've done a hell of a lot of damage. What say you? I would say there is a lot of damage, but. Uh what uh, progressives are doing in modern age is using them as a scapegoat for all of America's issues. Uh, they're using it to push climate change, saying, oh, our older generations have left this world behind for us. Uh, they've used them uh, for the economy, for everything, to blame it on them. Um, and meanwhile, they have done a lot for us. And we've seen a shift in how education is prioritized. Uh, like my grandfather was a laborer. 
uh, a lot of them were more focused on this blue collar work. And now at our age, you will see a lot of millennials, Gen Z, who will scoff at the idea of manual labor that uh, mm -hmm. we prioritize uh, secondary education, we prioritize the Ivy Leagues and it's just so beyond glorified. Um, and then kind of laugh at what a lot of our grandparents have accomplished for what they were given for their age bracket, for their class bracket. Uh, it was just such a different time back then. They didn't have the opportunities for higher education, but it's led a lot of people to wonder what are we accomplishing uh, when we built this ivory tower. Uh, we have people, you know, we joke majoring in basket weaving, but they're doing these kind of useless majors um, and then they become social media influencers. And you wonder how is that actually cultivating society? We've seen uh, the boomers who were the ones who built the skyscrapers. And uh, I was raised in Pittsburgh. So there was a huge emphasis on the Gilded Age and what industrialization has done for the better of America. Pittsburgh's an interesting one because uh, you had the steel industry. That's, yeah, totally destroyed by corrupt Democrats. But um, okay, so your argument is that while boomers have done some bad things, they're being vilified for the wrong things. Um, and they're just being used as scapegoats. That's, that's fair. That's fair. Um, does anyone else want to defend boomers, by the way? I don't want to defend them, but, but just a quick interjection, very, very quick. We have to ask ourselves what we're accomplishing if we deride an entire group of people. So I wouldn't be in this business if I didn't believe in the power of persuasion. Uh, I follow what Ernest Hemingway said. The truth has a certain ring to it. If you provide people with accurate information, they're just going to know it when they hear it. Mm -hmm. So to that end, I don't know that deriding a generation, even if we're being accurate in our criticisms, as you put it, Carter, like there is this, that, and the other, we can have this huge listicle of errors of their generation I don't find it persuasive and we need them on our side. We need to grow our tent as big as possible and show people the way. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely uh, one thing I don't like about it, even though I probably have said, okay, boomer sometimes but to people in like specific individuals. Uh, one thing I don't like about it is it, it is anti-individualistic and I certainly don't want to be blamed when I'm 80. I don't want to be blamed for the shit that people my age did. Cause God, we're, fucking up left and right excuse my language but geez we are you know we're making a mess of things so and i didn't do it so um and i didn't vote for it so i i get that i get that idea when it comes to let me let me throw another one out that maybe you guys will all argue against uh i don't think you can fix the public school problem i think you need to defund public schools and i don't think education should be i think what you're seeing now is the inevitable result of government funded education. Does anyone want to argue and yell at me and disagree with this? Um, I don't know if I can disagree with that, honestly. Uh, the quality of education in this country has just been on a steep decline and it got way worse after Common Core, who, which was mostly funded by Bill Gates, by the way. Um, Mm -hmm. And now they're focused way more on uh, emotional and social stuff and not academics. They're not teaching basic life skills anymore. Even when I was in high school, we didn't have any, we didn't have like home ec or shop or any of those classes where you learn actual physical things you need to know in life. 
Um, and my education was not fantastic in the public school system at all. Um, I, I agree there's something rotten in just the entire education system that I, I feel like you're right. The only way to fix it is just dismantle the whole thing and start over. I find that interesting well, what you said, Julia, about oh, sorry, um, no, no. that they're erasing home ec classes, those kind of practical workshops that my parents did, my grandparents did, and now they're saying, oh, that's teaching women to be comfortable at home. And they keep pushing mothers outside of their spheres. Uh, and you know, I'm not against women having greater freedom to choose uh, their profession, but it's also we're seeing an abandonment of motherhood the vilification of motherhood, that mothers no longer want to be mothers. And that's where parent, uh, the government comes in and wants to parent your kids. So it created that kind of power vacuum. And it, it starts, it keeps going back to education. We should have work, uh, wood shop. We should have home ec. Uh, I believe there used to be like tax preparation classes, things like that, how you learn to balance your finances. And all these practical life skills are being thrown out the window in exchange for critical race theory uh, rewriting history and gender indoctrination. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, when I, my fundamental problem with public education is that you're not the customer, right? We, you have to, you have to keep in mind when like, if you're not paying, you're not the customer. Um, and so when, you know, when an educator, you know, where they get their budget from is, some bureaucratic agency that's or or legislature sometimes that will will decide on budgets. So really, you don't really have control. Um, and my concern about public school at this point is, and I, I'm not saying this to be hyperbolic. I think sending your kid outside in the backyard and doing absolutely nothing for 12 years probably will be better than sending them to public education. They won't learn a bunch of stuff. They're not going to learn math, but they might learn how to build tree houses or do whatever. And like, they're certainly not going to be indoctrinated because they're just going to be outside in the backyard. Um, and that's pretty. That's a pretty pathetic state of education. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm being hyperbolic, but I don't think so. Yeah, I, I, I oh, sorry. Quick, quick remark. I do think that uh, parents should try to rescue their children from most public education systems. Maybe I'm being dramatic. Maybe I'm being hyperbolic, but I'm with you basically on that. I think the so-called public education system is designed to destroy your child's mind, and that's only getting worse every second. Um, just to get down to first principles, I'll give a slightly different angle. Carter, to your statement that you're not the customer when it comes to purchasing of education, perhaps you folks agree with me that competition is an essential ingredient in the recipe of excellence. And what you end up doing when you have a government monopoly on something or any sort of monopoly, I suppose, is the elimination of competitive forces. So we need to have schools compete with one another in one shape or form in order to hold them accountable to some degree. If schools can just expect to get their bailout every month or year from the taxpayer, there's no incentive for them to do well. This is like spoiling your child. You bail your kid out no matter what he or she does, the consequence. And we've even gone in the other direction, schools that underperform, schools that have a lot of crime or drug abuse or uh, poor academic grades or 
four levels of uh, post-secondary matriculation, they say we need more money, right? It, it, so we're literally subsidizing failure and depravity. So again, bottom line, we need competition of one degree or another. You could do that within the framework of government funding. You could not guarantee money every year or semester, but we need competition to create excellence. So did we, I, I know, I know I started, I kind of started following the format of the show and then we kind of <laughs> diverged a little bit. And I want to make sure we get a, everyone a chance to answer. So I asked, I started by asking Mia what the most important mainstream media uh, deception has been. And, we, and that went down a rabbit hole. I think Robert, you kind of answered that question also. Um, I don't know if Juliet got a chance to really answer that question. So let's, let's, Rewind, go back to that point, and Juliet, we'll throw it to you. Okay, segue. I was, you know, that question kind of stumped me all weekend. I was really like, where do you start? Like, all of all of it is deception. All of it's kind of important on a certain level. Um, so I went with the one that's been the most irritating to me lately as far as narratives go, and it's that Putin has lost his mind. Like, he's actually gone crazy. And that's why this is happening. So I started looking into it. Um, I guess I wasn't paying attention, but in 2014, the same accusations from the same people were being slung that Putin had gone crazy. He's a lunatic. He's just lost it, you know. And then I started finding really interesting defenses of him and they tend to come from people that worked in the CIA or historians. Um, a guy that's a renowned Russian historian was basically saying the only reason the West would accuse Putin of being a lunatic for doing this is because they truly don't understand the culture and history of Russia and who Putin is as a person. I mean, he's by many of our own leaders been descri described as cunning and clever like very smart and strategic and then he does something that he warned us for years that he was going to do he finally does it and everybody suddenly claims he's crazy because i think there's something comforting to just the general population if somebody does something we view as scary or evil if they're crazy then that's okay like you know, that makes sense that's why they're doing this but if they have valid reasons, if there's historical context and this is fitting a historical pattern of how you annex land that you want, um, that's scarier because if he's clever and strategic, you can't just dismiss this as, you know, an evil guy. This is something that a lot of people were just not aware of. They, I, I still say if you asked people a month ago to point Ukraine out on a blank map of Europe, they couldn't have done it. No. So, so you know, we're ignorant to the situation completely. Our media doesn't really cover like when Russia says has these speeches and their commanders and Putin warn people that this is coming. We don't really cover it. So. It's just been very irritating to me because it's simplifying it in a totally illegitimate way that doesn't help anyone understand what's going on or the kind of severity of the situation we're in right now. So that was my <laughs> that's my big okay. story of the week. Yeah, um, 
I think one thing that that calling Putin crazy does uh, is it undercuts any motivation to comprehend what's actually going on. Because mm -hmm. if I come in and I am doing, let's say, I, you know, you invite me over to a party and I come over and I start acting crazy or doing things that seem like seem like they're weird. Uh, if you ask yourself, well, why is he doing that? You might discover, oh, like there's a bee stuck in his shirt. And that's why he's like, you know, he needs like there's a reason. There's some reason that he's behaving in this way. But if you just say, oh, he's crazy, um, you're never going to you're never going to understand what what the motivations are and you're never going to be able to deal with it. Um, I don't think that our leaders actually think he's crazy because um, if they did, they wouldn't be so brazen about going to war with him because he does have the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. And if you thought he was clinically insane, you probably would not provoke war with someone who was clinically insane. That would be also insane. So uh, I think it's used as a technique to get all of us to not pay attention to any counter narrative. What do you guys think? Totally agree with that. Yes. Uh, just, just quick remark here. Um, deriding someone as crazy absolutely absolves one self of any responsibility to seek to understand, but to go deeper into what Julia was saying. And also you Carter, Julia was saying earlier that we should not assume I'm paraphrasing, you know, good faith on the part of the media. Everything they're doing is a disinformation campaign. That is the purpose of the so-called mainstream media to misinform you. It doesn't misinform you by accident. It doesn't misinform you just through incompetence. It is there to do that, to, to break your mind and to corrupt your understanding of the world as it is. And as you were saying, Carter, they're not genuine in their accusations or derision of Putin as mentally ill. Uh, as Julia was saying earlier, they were describing him as cunning not that long ago, right? So they didn't change their minds. It's all bad faith. It's all insincere. It's all lies. And the worst thing we could do would be to uh, integrate what the MSM is telling us to believe and accept it on good faith. Yeah. And um, yeah. right now we're in a propaganda war. And to win a war, you must understand your enemy. And as Juliet was saying, I don't think... Uh, some of our leaders do. They're trying to uh, undermine Putin's cunningness uh, because uh, any skeptic, anyone such as Trump who had uh, appealed to uh, his cleverness, they're casted off as uh, you know pro-Putin operatives or they're rooting against the West. But we should be allowed to have nuanced conversations about this because if we escalate towards eventual NATO boots on the ground, that is a serious deal. And we're seeing a lot of warmongering in Congress. They're using it as virtue signaling. Uh, but there's no substantive arguments they have for now. Uh, they won't even acknowledge the risk that we're going to risk uh, American lives for someone else's war. Instead, it's we must stand up to Putin. We must do it. And you saw the uh, Congress members stand up, give a standing ovation to Zelensky when he addressed Congress. And all of that was a bit of virtue signaling, saber rattling. And you saw all these Twitter profiles, the blue checks change their screen names to the Ukrainian flag. Um, I'm pretty sure they didn't know what it looked like either, besides not being able to point it out on a map. This is just the latest talking point. And in a sense, uh, the Ukrainian conflict has cured COVID because that 
is last year's news, and this is the latest crisis to capitalize on. Yeah, it's amazing how that works, huh? Putin, Putin cured COVID. Yay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, the Ukrainian thing is an, an interesting one because I think, uh, as you were just saying, Mia, like it's, there's no nuance. So anything, if you push back on any of the narrative, you're suddenly you're a Putin propagandist and you're you're a Russian troll or whatever. You're you're the one spreading disinformation. But you know, simultaneously, it's very obvious that they want to keep the public in the dark. I mean, if you look at YouTube deleted Oliver Stone's Ukraine on Fire documentary. I think other people have since uploaded it, but they deleted the the documentary from from YouTube. Now this was made post 2014. Uh, supposed to Maidan revolution, um, which we can put in quote. I mean, there's so much there, right? It was made post 2014, but prior to this whole thing, um, Oliver Stone is not known for being a right wing uh, personality. So you, you know, you can't be like this is just Trump propaganda. Uh, it's a fascinating video, um, but they don't want us to see it. That's pretty suspicious, um, and you know, I. I think it's you can't you're not even really allowed to say, hey, there's both there's bad people. I look, my heart goes out to the Ukrainian people because I think they're in the middle of they're caught between Western leaders and Putin having a battle with each other. And the Ukrainian it's happening at the Ukrainian people's expense. You've also seen you've also seen a lot of vilification of Russian citizens, which is, uh, which is scary to me. Uh, I think, you know, you had first, first the mainstream was, was willing to unperson uh, people who voted for Trump. They were the deplorables. They were the slack jawed, ignorant, stupid Trump voters. We can, you know, we, we can ignore the dumb Trump voters. Um, and then it was the unvaccinated, unvax, I'm use that in quotes, but then it was the unvaccinated, people who didn't take the jabs. They're the stupid idiots causing grandma to die and blah, 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 blah. And now it's kind of literally the Russian people. Hey, they shouldn't have access to Apple products or Netflix or anything. We shouldn't even buy vodka. That's Russian vodka. Um, what do you guys make of this attack on I mean, innocent Russian people. If Putin is a dictator, then the Russian people are absolutely innocent. Well, it's gross. Uh, I, I want to just make one side point here. This is kind of funny in a meta way because the theme of this show is underreported stories or stories that are ignored or stories that are lied about by the so-called mainstream media. And what this Ukraine-Russia conflict affords the media and also their allies or partners in government and related institutions is this shiny object with which to escape any real responsibility or work or investigation of domestic issues that actually matter acutely, intimately to Americans. So as Mia was mentioning at the beginning, uh, in, with respect to so-called gender ideology and this uh, sexual indoctrination of children, as I would describe it, we're not going to spend as much bandwidth on that if we're focusing on this, you know, Ukraine-Russia conflict. It'll, this whole Ukraine-Russia conflict allows for 
the the theft of time and energy and resources in terms of our minds, our attention spans, away from what's happening to us right in our own countries, what's being done to us by these abusive institutions, whether it's so-called big tech or our governments or the so-called mainstream media or the so-called educational establishment. So it's it's almost ironic how this conflict forms a foundation of the subtext of this show. Yeah, uh, you're making me think of 1984. Like we're always, we've always been at war with East Asia or whatever. Like it's the war, it's the distraction. Mm -hmm. It's the, well. Speaking of distractions, um, let's talk about Hunter Biden for just a moment because I know none of you brought Hunter Biden up, but you kind of did when you brought up Ukraine. So we've got a guy who just, you know, for the audience who they don't know. Um, in 2014, when, when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States uh, and uh, Victoria Newland worked for him um, and uh, that famous phone call where uh, it's between Victoria Newland and I forget the other guy's name, but uh, someone someone from uh, the embassy to the Ukrainian embassy, our embassy to the Ukraine, um, talking about getting rid of the government that Ukraine had at the time, talking about who they wanted, basically talking about who they wanted to be in charge. They wanted Yatsenyuk, uh, to, hey, guess who was afterwards? Uh, they wanted Yatsenyuk in charge. They talked about the positions that people should take. This was leaked uh, probably by the Russians who had access to it somehow, but this was leaked. And um, and at the, this is the time when Hunter Biden is being paid like 80K a month to be on the board of Burisma energy in Ukraine. Um, this is a time when you've got a lot of people with connections to Ukraine. And I'm just I'll just say both sides of the aisle, deep state connections to the Ukraine, people making money in the Ukraine. Uh, in, sorry, it's not the in Ukraine uh, through things like Burisma and that kind of stuff. And you've got Hunter Biden's laptop. So actually, so let's back up. These people are the same people that are pushing the Trump Russia conspiracy theories, which is interesting um and then you get the hunter biden laptop story coming out right before the 2020 election and all the major media says well, this is russian disinformation you've got I, I printed out this public statement from right before the election this is a public statement from signed by a whole bunch of intelligence agency people jim clapper mike hayden leon panetta john brennan like this is a, a huge list of people saying uh, this has all the class. They're talking about Hunter Biden's story. It's all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. There are a number of factors that make us suspicious of Russian involvement. They're saying ignore this story. You had New York Post lost their or they were suspended from Twitter um, for saying this. All the major social media said don't talk about the Hunter Biden thing. It's Russian disinformation. That's what we were told. It's Russian disinformation. Here we are. And, and oh, and by the way. Uh, the media, I think it's called the Media Research Center, did a survey shortly after the election that had people known about the Hunter Biden story, it would have easily swayed the election in all the swing states. See, like Joe Biden would have lost if not for the suppression of this news story. That's very clear. Very clear. And now here we are a year and a half later, and the New York Times is saying, Oh, well, actually, that Hunter Biden story is real. The laptop story was real. Uh, we can talk about it now. It kind of seems like all roads lead back to Ukraine in some way, that there's this, there's this uh, level of corruption that is just 
they're working really hard to cover up. They really don't want us to see what the deep state is doing when it's meddling in some of these countries uh, like Ukraine and just making bank, making money for people like Hunter Biden um, by exploiting connections that they have uh, to powerful people in Washington. And I, I, I see this story and all I think of is how how involved was the U.S. in the 2014 revolution in, in Ukraine? How involved have we been in Ukraine, Ukrainian politics since then? And is this really just a bunch of elites in Washington pissed off at Putin for, you know, taking some toys away from them, taking some opportunity to make money away from them? Um, what do you guys think? Am I being a conspiracy theorist? Am I Alex Jones on this or is this all related? No, no not at all. I mean... Uh, as you brought up that letter that was signed by a bunch of intelligence officials, uh, the New York Post just ran another story on how they reached out to every single one who signed. Most of them declined to comment, refused to apologize, and a few doubled down, including Clapper. And so mm -hmm. they're still refusing to not just apologize to the New York Post who broke the story. Meanwhile, all these other outlets, you know, they, they cast it off as Russian disinformation. Uh, these people who denied uh, the validity of the laptop in the first place, not only should they apologize to the New York Post, but they should apologize to the American people, to the American voters, because uh, the objective has already been achieved. Biden's in office. But back then, it's crazy to think that these big tech platforms were successfully able to suppress a bombshell story on a presidential candidate, um, on the Democratic nominee. And Twitter and Facebook were both able to get away with it. Uh, New York Post Twitter account was locked out. And uh, all these uh, conservative influencers who tried to share this story, they were targeted too. So it was this campaign against the truth at the time. And now that it's coming out, which is the New York Times finally acknowledging the legitimacy of it. Oh, uh, slowly we're seeing a lot of these TV personalities and pundits slowly uh, crawl out of the woodwork to either admit or there's like Brian Stelter, who still um, is in fantasy land over it and hoping that this all gets brushed under the rug. Uh, Robert, you've been white pilling us. Explain to me, <laughs> white, white pill me on this idea that there's no legitimacy to elections anyway at this point. And like that we're, we have no control. You can't vote your way out of this. There's nothing you can do. You've got big all the major big tech companies in cahoots with the dnc and the agenda or just the agenda of the deep state frankly if it were republicans they'd be pushing the, the same thing if it, if it matched their agenda that's fine um because they're all on board with ukraine how do we what, where's the white pill in all this I got another amazing synchronicity for you. The white pill that I'll share with you relates to the theme of the show, which is, you know, buried stories, stories that are lied about. So if we take the aggregate of deception from the machine, as I call it, in this case, let's focus on the media component of it, the increasingly aggressive and brazen lies that the so-called mainstream media tells us is becoming unavoidable in terms of the public consciousness. In other words, there is a growing public appreciation for how much we are being lied to. Uh, 
there is a growing public cynicism and skepticism over what they're being told by ostensible authorities and public trust in all of these institutions that form what I call the machine is probably at an all time low, at least in terms of the last hundred years. So that's a mm -hmm. good thing. There is a potential there in growing public distrust. Now, here's more to the white pill. As the public becomes more and more skeptical the machine of what they're being told by the machine, the machine becomes aware of its degrading credibility due to its own excesses. So what does the machine do in response to this? It doubles and triples down on its lies. There's no such thing as a man and a woman. A man can become pregnant, right? Let's censor this mm -hmm. story, that story. Oh, there's no such thing as somebody being injured or harmed by this new medical procedure. Wink, wink, I won't say it, right? right. So, so the lies are becoming extreme. Look at uh, any so-called presidential debate. You can see how these so-called moderators behave. They're not referees. They're advocates. It's mm -hmm. unavoidable how deceptive they are. So again, these two forces, on the one hand, the growing skepticism of the public, and on the other hand, the growing excesses of the machine, these two forces are colliding and they mutually reinforce one another. And another thing here is, too, that this is also, in my view, again, back to the subtext of the show, this mutually reinforcing phenomena is one of the biggest stories of our time. Because how this plays out, these two forces colliding will determine our future. So the white pill is not necessarily a forecast of a good outcome, because, again, the future has not yet been written. There are potential unthinkably awful futures that possibly await us. There are also amazing futures that may await us. Depends on what we do or don't do. But uh, yeah, the white pill is in the potential. There are more people than ever before who are open-minded to being red-pilled. And that's the white pill. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let me, um, let me read a quick super chat and then I'm going to Get back to some questions. Uh, TPS says, frustrated with parents demanding emergency youth authorization for vax infants when the data just isn't there. Even, quote, evidence-based groups, they're brainwashed and scared. Uh, yeah, any comments? <laughs> you guys about that? They are brainwashed and scared. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't, I don't right. see much other than agreeing. I don't know what else to say about that. Yes. Right. Uh, all right. So I asked you all what was the, and and we may have already answered the second question for many of you, but we'll just uh, we'll double check to make sure. I asked you all what, what was the most important uh, story about which mainstream media had been misleading us recently. I'm now just going to ask what should we be paying attention to, and I know we may have already covered, but just to make sure, what should we be paying attention to that that's not being noticed? Is there anything that we we haven't talked about that you want to say, this is what we should notice? This is what we should pay attention to? Um, we talked a lot about gender, so I would like to pivot towards race, uh, which is definitely a hot topic right now. Uh, when we saw all that destruction in 2020 during the violent BLM riots, uh, now is about the time a lot of the rioters are getting convicted and sentenced. And I feel a lot of the mainstream media is pushing this under the rug as well because uh, it definitely paints uh, a far more violent picture, a far more militant picture of what the BLM movement seeks to achieve. And also the Stop Asian Hate movement uh, that was really uh, launched during Trump's time, in the wake of Trump's time, and still used to this day to pin white supremacy and anti-Asian violence on Trump when 
this wave of crime is consuming what's Biden's America. Um, so I want to explore and see if uh, Robert or Juliet have um, anything to say uh, why we're still seeing this uptick in anti-Asian violence. I'll go first. I, I'll, I'll give a very brief, uh, easy answer. I think that according to the leftist framework of oppressor versus oppressed, haves versus have-nots, Asians in America will be viewed as oppressive haves. So they are, according to left-wing ideology, unjustifiable beneficiaries of this privilege. So since Asians on average may have higher average earnings than let's say the average American or even more narrowly, supposedly aggrieved and oppressed groups as defined along the lines of ethnicity or race or whatever, Asians are viewed as oppressors. So as you mentioned a moment ago, the real perpetrators of this violence are those among Biden's America. And in part, I think this is related to their own ideological subscription to viewing Asians as oppressors. And by the way, that also relates to um, prejudicial crimes targeting Jews. Jews are also going to be viewed as beneficiaries of unjustifiable privilege, and therefore it's okay to hurt them according to this framework. Very yeah. good point. Um, I I think let's see how two ways I'll I'll bounce off of your point there that um, when you read into critical race theory, which is I'm not gonna lie, very hard to read into because most of the writings are just paragraphs of nonsense. Like they sound like they're making a point, but you, I have to reread it over and over to see what they're even trying to say. Like, it's just very hard to really read it. Um, problem being that Asian Americans as a whole don't fit their narrative. They're actually the exact opposite of what they're claiming. So I think there's like some resentment there. I don't know. But I, I also think this is, again, the media is creating this problem that they're making they might be blowing it up you know they're not covering every crime they're covering the crimes that fit into that one subset which makes it seem as a whole as a like a very large problem but um i think the rise in crime is thanks mostly to our government they their failed policies in major cities these uh you know light on crime bills that let violent criminals right back out onto the street, which then what is their reason not to continue to be violent and to get worse? Um, so I think we're seeing the product of a lot of stress. I mean, the pandemic and the shutdowns created a lot of distress in our population, failed policies, absolutely. Um, and this weird thing where people were trying to be like, oh, no, it's OK to have huge homeless camps in the middle of our downtown. That's totally fine. They just have nowhere to go. And it's OK if they, you know, do drugs on the sidewalk in front of us. Uh, you know, they just they have a problem and just trying to be tolerant when there's a reason as a society that you can't really allow these types of things because they lead to increased crime and danger to the population. So. It's it's hard to say. I would I I haven't looked into the statistics versus other years, but I do feel like the media loves to run with a narrative and highlight anything that fits it. 
especially if it's white on Asian crime. But mm -hmm. if you've seen the New York Post, uh, Fox News covers when it's black on Asian crime. And that is something that these anti-racist activists turn a blind eye to because they can't believe that a minority would attack another minority. And that feeds into what Robert was saying. Uh, Asians have become white adjacent and they're not only facing violence on the streets, but they're facing discrimination in the public school system, uh, what you saw with Thomas Jefferson High School in Fairfax County and their uh, unfair admissions practices. And even in the Ivy League with Harvard um, and the Students for uh, Fair Admissions uh, launching their lawsuit against them. And uh, what um, we were just talking about, there's this unfair representation of black on Asian crime versus white on Asian crime. And I believe there was this uh, professor who wrote a piece claiming that white supremacy is the root of all race-related uh, violence. That you know, uh, someone who is a minority, uh, uh, these anti-racist activists can't fathom that they have their own agency, they have their own motives. And there's something more to blame than just the white supremacist boogeyman out there. Yeah, I, I would, I would say more than even being white adjacent. I think Asians are in a particularly difficult spot. They're kind of like the Candace Owens, right? So, according to the left, blacks all have to agree on the the same narrative. They all, you know, so blacks who disagree, like Candace Owens or Larry Elder, are called out and vilified and really uh, treated worse than than white people who would disagree they're because they're they're considered traitors to the ideology um because these are these are tribal ideologies and and they do identify people i mean they're racists so they identify people by race and that's how they categorize people and i think the, the asian community's got a problem because uh their very existence their very success in the united states is a counter argument to the entire narrative of the left, right? Which is white supremacy, whites pushing whites, whites are, whites are racist, they're racist against everyone else. And then you say, well, hey, what about Asians who come over here? Also when they, they can come over poor and are succeeding more on average than white people um, by the metrics that they're using, right? So why is that? And I think, I, and I think they get viewed, frankly, I think Asians get viewed as a, class as this traitorous class like you're ruining you're ruining the crt narrative for us that's not how it's supposed to go um and you know their answer to everything is that whiteness is the problem so of course they're just going to say like yes well it must be because you have white supremacy in your blood uh somehow and you're adopting whiteness um but they do underreport the black on Asian crime. They do focus on the white on Asian crime. My wife is Chinese and in the Chinese community here in the Bay Area. And like they they have a, I would say, a less, they a more unfiltered view because they, they're just passing around in their community. Like, here's another crime. Here's another crime. Here's another crime. And you're right. The ones that are not white on Asian crime, which is, that's a minority of them. Uh, they don't get reported. Uh, they're just, they don't make the news. Uh, they don't get talked about. And I think, you know, you've got, <sighs> the left is really trying to start a race war here and they're really agitating. Um, they're really agitating uh, American blacks into blaming 
whites and Asians and everyone else for any of the ills that are in their society. Not that there isn't racism. Of course there is, but, um, you know, it's not, uh, it's not that straightforward. And, and you can see why two years of being locked up destruction of the economy, um, frustrates a lot of people. And so you're going to see on, from all groups, you're going to see more bad behavior, I think, uh, manifest. And that's just one of them. One of the examples. What else shouldn't we should we be paying attention to that we're not, or have we have we beat a dead horse? Are we there? To, to build on this point that you're making about people being frustrated, harmed by what I call the COVID nineteen enterprise, and Juliet was mentioning this also, is that we should not expect to see a thorough or accurate accounting of the harm caused by the COVID-19 enterprises architects and advocates. So we could all sort of brainstorm what those metrics would look like. How many businesses were bankrupted due to being deemed non-essential by the powers that be? How many jobs were lost due to, oh, that guy sneezed. He can't come to work for a month. All of these ridiculous and abusive and immoral measures, decrees, edicts, mandates, lockdowns, shutdowns, whatever you want to call it, will there ever be an accounting of that? How about I'll even give one more example. What about so-called non-essential medical services that are furloughed at different hospitals? Oh, we're going to have this massive wave of casualties with a specific virus, wink, wink. So we need to shut down all of these types of diagnostic tools because we're going to have this uh, end of days type flow of casualties, right? So people don't get this or that diagnostic, don't get an MRI, don't get an ultrasound, and who knows whatever illness that they might have had has either become worse, become terminal, whatever it is. So will we ever get an accounting of that? How many people were harmed or killed as a function of the COVID-19 enterprise? Don't expect that. So if we're going to pay attention, if we're going to issue a sort of recommendation to the audience, what to look for, talk to people you know in your circle, in your life, in your world, and get those stories because CNN will never tell them to you. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and, it, and you're not... And, and those are even... Those are indirect deaths, perhaps, we could even say. I mean, there's even, without mentioning the name, uh, let's say, for example, there were uh, potential mitigation uh, pharmaceuticals that were off patent that had very little downside to giving it a try. Maybe they had been tested for 40 years and in widespread use and had very little, you know, something like that. Uh, now... If taking that as prophylactically or uh, early uh, early symptoms, if that actually would have helped, we have uh, an entire cathedral of mainstream media and government organizations that were actively participating in killing people, or were actively saying "Don't do this," or or making it difficult to even try and get them. I mean, it's it's one of the most unconscionable things to me is this idea that like, well. That's not effective, so you're not allowed to try it. It's like, yeah, but what's the downside? It's like if I if I'm drinking a glass of water, I'm like, this might cure my AIDS or whatever. Like, does it? Will it? No, but there's really no downside to letting me like try it. Drink the glass of water. Water's fine. It's not going to hurt you. We were in that situation, and we had all of the mainstream media, 
all the government agencies, all the experts, many doctors saying, no, you can't try this thing. How many people died as a result of that? Carter, you're going to get banned by YouTube for sure. But yeah, I totally agree with you. <laughs> I'm totally talking about you. the Zika virus and something unrelated to anything right. that happened recently. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, um, all right. Well, look, any final comments, anything else that you think we got, we should be we talking about as a, as a group here that we're not. Okay. That's... I've got one. Okay. All right. So I was looking into, you know, there, there are these little things like they pop up in an article is just like a reference to something else about crop planting this year, fertilizer exports, all this stuff. So I started looking, thinking that I could come with a little printout of a few statistics and know what I was talking about. I spent like eight hours yesterday reading into this, um, reading into all of the countries that are starting to implement what they call trade protectionism, where you're not sure the supply is going to stay available. So then you stop exporting and you start hoarding what you have it's and it's a snowball like it it starts with one or two that have a valid reason to do it and then everybody else is like well why are they doing that so then they start hoarding and then all of a sudden this price of grain for instance skyrockets because what i learned is that grain prices are much like oil it's a global market so the less there is on the market the higher the prices go um, and it, there's so many facets to this, like, uh, apparently it was a La Nina year, uh, for South America growing season. So their crops are not coming in at as big as predicted. We get a lot of soybeans from Argentina, that kind of thing. So it's not dramatic, but it's still a lower yield and going into the growing season in the United States. It's still a La Nina weather cycle. So most of the United States is in a drought, not the East Coast, but very much the West Coast. The plains mm -hmm. are all much drier than they should be for the planting season. Add on to that, we are having a really hard time getting fertilizer because, you know, we do get some from Russia. Apparently we get some from Canada, but because of their rail railway strike, they can't transport it down to us. And there are a few experts. One of them was on Fox News, and like his name is slipping my mind right now. But there are a few that are sounding a real alarm right now. They're like, if we don't have fertilizer in our hands all over the country, like now, the crops are not going to be big this year. And we're a huge exporter. I mean, we feed a lot of countries. And a lot of countries that rely on Russia and Ukraine aren't going to be able to rely on them because they've both banned exports of basic grains. So we're heading into this weird place that none of us have experienced before, where all of a sudden food, which is just plentiful, especially in the great country that we live in, is not going to be as plentiful. And we're facing potentially a bad season for the Northern Hemisphere because, you know, the United States and then Ukraine and Russia that are in a conflict right now, um, we, we provide a lot of the grain for the world. So if we all have bad seasons, then this will spiral into next year. 
And there are certain countries, Egypt is the top of everyone's list, that aren't going to make it unless we find ways to move some grain around. China has a ton, but I doubt they're going to give it to Egypt. Um, and the real thing here, other than just food shortages, because, again, we grow enough in America to feed America. So we'll see. Um, the bigger thing is that historically, whenever there or food shortages, especially for grain and flour, next comes social unrest. It triggered the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Arab Spring was triggered by food prices. Apparently, I didn't know that until yesterday. So we're looking at potential for widespread hunger, which is a problem we all you know, the world comes together to try to solve, but we're also, if that happens, we'll be looking at widespread social unrest that would just piggyback on to the situation we have right now in Europe. So it's just something to keep an eye on. These The, the current growing season in the Northern Hemisphere and crop yields and stuff like that, because it probably wouldn't be right away. It would take a few months, maybe in the fall, we'd start seeing some fallout from this, but it could potentially be a really big deal. That's concerning. I mean, my understanding is that like Russia and Ukraine are the breadbasket of Europe. I know that, like you said, the U.S. is a huge exporter. Um, it's weird because this is right on the back of COVID, right? So we've got, because COVID, I don't think we've felt the effects of the COVID um, lockdowns yet completely either because you know i don't think many people understand how interconnected the global economy is um like you can't you can't have a modern life without the the <laughs> the rare earth metals and processing of those metals in countries that you don't think you rely on but you do um just it's just we're very 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 tightly connected and you saw china and the U.S. Um, kind of retract during COVID and, and start, um, you know, insulating themselves a little bit more. And, you know, one of the things I'm concerned about is I see China looking at the this conflict right now and saying, is that, look, we already had to kind of untether ourselves from America a little bit because of this COVID thing. And 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 it's quite a lot that they've untethered themselves. Um, maybe now is a good time to kind of stay away and and i know a lot of i think a lot of americans are like yeah screw china we don't need china blah, blah, blah. i'm like okay you, you can say that but um i think a separation of china and the u.s hurts the american people a lot more than it hurts the average chinese um and they have been uh they have been actively pushing uh, themselves into South America and Africa, and they've, they've by by building olive branches, by funding schools and funding industry and and doing stuff to get the population excited. Now and now they're I think now they're talking to Russia about well, how about AliPay or WeChat Pay because you know Apple Pay doesn't work anymore and Google Pay doesn't work anymore, and the idea that. Uh, the idea that we can go back and, you know, I'm an isolationist militarily, but not economically. The idea that we can go back into economic isolationism and have uh, any semblance of modern life is uh, just false. 
Yeah, um, that wasn't a question, but I don't know. (laughs) I left this out earlier. The supply chain issues, uh, especially between the U.S. and China, it's also feeding into the current growing season here because the farmers can't get the parts to fix machinery, let alone order tractors from overseas because it would take, you know, they won't be here in time, basically. So that's another aspect of this and that's a trickle down effect from the COVID pandemic and the um, trade problems that we've had in the past couple years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's disturbing, Mm -hmm. Juliet. I'm working on a write up. (laughs) I'm going to write it all Every time Robert gives us a white pill, Juliet just throws (laughs) some black pill on it. Here you go. Uh, So I guess we should be stocking up on food. Is that your... Yeah. Well, yeah, it's not a bad idea ever. I'm just going to say that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, all right. Any any final thoughts from, from anyone else? Anything that we're missing? Any other stories that you guys think we should be paying attention to? All right. I think I think we uh, I think we did it. There's I, we covered almost everything that I can think of in this conversation. <laughs> Granted. We didn't go super in depth on everything, but we covered we covered everything. So, um, remind people where uh, where they can find you, Mia. Where can where can people find you? How can they follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Mia Cathel, and uh, my pieces appear in the Post Millennial, uh, connected to my author page as well. Cool. And Juliet, uh, you can find me on Gab for right now uh, at Truthseeker eight four eight seven. You can find me on Breitbart News, and I'm also on Twitter and Instagram with just uh, my name. Awesome. Well, look, I really appreciate uh, all of your time today. It was a great conversation. Thank you for joining. Um, and uh, everyone, please go go follow these wonderful people. See what they have to say. Um, maybe sometimes you'll get a white pill out of it. Sometimes <laughs> you'll want to go hoard, hoard food. So, uh, so thank you, everyone, for watching. As a reminder, um, Go support Unsafe Space at unsafespace.com. The next show is Dangerous Thoughts on Wednesday evening. So we'll see you there. And uh, have a good one. Cheers, folks. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may be Russian propaganda. The following individuals are suspected of questioning one or more official narratives. Experts agree that there is an epidemic of sexually uninformed five-year-olds, and Florida is the cause. Here's an idea, why not stop complaining, and buy a Tesla? I'm sorry, there is no record of a COVID pandemic. You must be mistaken.
If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.